so I'm here, listeners, in the Wildfowler Wetland Trust site in Arundel. And you can hear the sound of a sedge warbler. And, uh, oh, what's this? Hello. It's, it's a Joe Davis in the undergrowth. It's <laughs> an alarming sign. I thought we'd eradicated them from the countryside like knotweed. Yeah, it's a lovely place here, isn't it? Gorgeous, isn't it? Who'd have thought? Wait a minute, what's that? Looks like a trunk. No, wait, big ears. Huh. I told you they were real. <laughs> I can't believe it. Welcome everyone to, uh, what well, you know, the thing is, it is episode 201, but actually when I was looking back yeah. recently at episode titles, I realised we put an extra one in. Did you know this? Well, I, I yeah, but that was the point. It's an extra one. It didn't count. Oh, okay. So there's like this one that I think is like 45A or something. I don't know yeah. what it is. So you're saying this is episode 202? 202, really. But, it's not. But <laughs> we better not celebrate that, I think. Anyway, uh, yes, welcome everybody to episode 201 slash 2. My name is Nick Page. You are going blurry the whole time on my Zoom screen. Oh, yeah, sorry about that. And then you're not. It's very alarming. No, that's because I've got a little background so you don't see all all my books and plastic model G's eye, of which I have a collection. But I know what your room looks like. I've yeah, been I know. in it. You, you do, but sensible people who are having meetings with me don't. Oh, okay. And it might give the wrong impression. Uh, it's just your whole face goes blurry, and I'm not object. <laughs> I'm not objective to that. I want to make no. That I've quite got quite clear. a blurry face anyway, so <laughs> it's quite awful being pixelated at your age. Uh, anyway, where were we? Oh yeah, welcome everyone to episode oh, two hundred and one. That's about the fourth time Still, I've done that. Um, very bored my, already. I'm Nick Page. He's Joe Davis. Good. Or Joe Bl- Blurry Davis, as he's known. Any church notices? Yes, there is an important notice. Um, not only have I seen you last weekend, but I'm going to see you on Monday because we're at the Lee Abbey. We are, yeah. In North Devon. I know. What would you encourage people to wear? <laughs> Clothing. Okay, good. Anything more specific than that? <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> I don't know. A veil? I mean, what do you what want? What should people yeah. drink? Should they bring drink? See, I have many questions about this. There is going to be a bar there that will sell yeah. a limited amount, I think it's fair to say, of beer and wine. Okay. If, if you have a wine you particularly enjoy, I would say bring a bottle with it. The only deal is I will have to charge you a corkage for that, <laughs> i.e. a small glass. <laughs> I I think it's generally good to bring a bottle wherever okay. you go, really. But then that's veering towards alcoholism, isn't it, really? Yes, we don't want to <laughs> That go kind there. of statement. No. Anyway, yes, yes, it's amazing. Yes, Lee Abbey is nearly upon us. And for that reason, uh, dear listener, we will probably not have an episode out next week because it's a bit tricky to uh, upload from a place with virtually no Wi-Fi. Mm. Um, and so we're going to take next week off. And then we're going to come storming back yes. with a two-parter, um, which we recorded at the weekend. We did with the fabulous Dave Steele from One Church. We um, 
we decided it was time to do something specifically for the many beautiful uh, listeners who are in fact church leaders. So I hope that this will be uh, two podcasts that are of interest to everyone. But we specifically wanted to speak into the issue of being a leader and going through those kind of uh, stages of faith changes or as we like to call it, mid-faith crisis um, and what that means and what are the particular pressures on leaders. So I hope, well, I think it was a really interesting interview. I, I found it interesting. I'm hoping the listeners will. So, yeah. Well, that's the plan. It was a great conversation. Mm. Um, I've just got to to uh, deal with the background hum in the audio. So, you know, can't promise anything, but, you know, it, that's the plan. It was uh, really good. And it's about... Um, it's from your perspective as well. It's about leading church through change and what you, how you lead a church when they believe something different to you or when significant portions of them do. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, we'll we'll issue that. Of course, we might record at the Abbey and record a brilliant episode, which we'll put out in its place. Who knows? No one knows. We live on the edge. We we are. We're spontaneous. That's what we do. We're creative artists. <laughs> well, they can't tie us down. <laughs> no, exactly. No. Um. So anyway, how are you? Oh, well, yeah, good. Well, hey, I spent a lovely weekend with my dear friend, Nick Page. That was amazing, wasn't it? Wasn't that lovely? I really enjoyed oh. it. That was great to see you and lovely to eat with you. And um, that's always good. And uh, you bought me uh, a book, you lovely oh. man. Oh. So you mentioned it on the podcast before, this book, 4,000 Weeks. And I, I tell you what, there's there's some wisdom in that. It's a good book, isn't it? Hmm. Remind me of the author's name because I've forgotten. Oh. But Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman. Oliver Berkman yeah. So forget everything you thought you knew about time management. You've got 4,000 weeks or thereabout. I mean, hopefully you might have a bit more, you might have a bit less. But the point is 4,000 weeks, you can't do everything. Get over it and start enjoying your life today. Um, that's the message I'm taking so far. But there's uh, there's much more to go. Yeah, it's it's good. Maybe we'll, we'll pick up on it. We could, uh, hey, we've never done a book group, have we? We could no. all read a book together and Wouldn't that be comment great? on it. We sort of did it with your book. Sort we of. did, yes, yes. Yeah. And that's the those are the only books really worth worth worth, worth doing, doing them with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now I come to think about it. <laughs> yeah. So um, no, that's that's been great. How are you, dear friend? Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, like you, really enjoyed the weekend. Um, you know, and I watched a football match with you, which I haven't done for some time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was slightly terrible. less enjoyable, although Ian was very hospitable. We had lovely, uh, lovely wine and and food, so that was lovely. But good um, on, yeah, no, it was a great weekend, wasn't it? It was really, mm. really good to, to spend time with you and to do the interview and um, and see a kingfisher. Which oh was yes, wonderful. we did see a kingfisher. Yeah, yeah. that was great. Mm. Um, other than that, I'm okay. I've just done a talk about my career. Have you? I literally just come back from doing a talk about my career, and um, it's quite alarming at the length of it, really, I think. Not the length of your career or the talk? Yeah, well, no, the career. <laughs> Although perhaps the talk seemed as long as the career, I don't know. I don't know. It's a really funny thing being a writer because you look back at books that you did, uh, you know, 20 years ago, and, and, and it's like you're fixed. It's like, yes, it's like you realise that some like people. That. Some people will only know you as that and they'll pick up a book that you did in 1998 or something and they'll think that's him. And of course, I'm, yeah. I'm very different now. It's, a, yes. it's kind of odd thing. Really. It's a very hard thing because I, I, I was reading through my journal from 12 years ago and I was embarrassed at it. I wouldn't want right. other people reading that. 
so I can see how there's no once you fix something at a point in time, there isn't room for growth. It's like, oh, that's what Nick Page thinks about this issue or that's how he feels about that if you're reading it 12 years later. But you may have grown and developed. I trust you have. Um, so, yeah, I can see that's a problem. And we've talked about this for worship writers as well, haven't we? How they've had a certain theology at one point, but they've changed and now they feel a bit embarrassed about some of the stuff they wrote. What's more, I think the culture of the times, they they quite want to keep you in that position, don't they? So that's, you know, quite often you have people hauled up for tweets that they did yes, when they were like 15 or 16 or something. <laughs> yes, right. And they have to apologise for it and go on courses and all this kind of stuff. Or lose their jobs sometime, which seems yeah. very harsh because they may Well, have it is, isn't it? And, and, and you kind of think everyone changes. Mm. Um and, and you you say things you didn't necessarily agree with. I know I when I was um, writing for the theatre company years ago, I wrote sketches about sort of going to hell, which I wouldn't dream of doing now, you know, because my, my theology is not the same. So it's kind of odd. Anyway, um, we're always changing and it's not necessarily for the better. Um, talking of changing, there's a great article I was sent in The Guardian. I'll put a link in. And it's about how to dress when you're older. Oh, really? Well, I need that. <laughs> And the, uh, it says, go 10% more dressy for every 10 years over 40. So get you, you should basically get 10% more flamboyant. Oh, is that uh, right? Every decade. Good to know. Which I think I'm trying to do. I actually. think you're I'm there. Gonna, I think I'm going with that. The hat you were wearing at the weekend was rather splendid, if I may say so. Thank you very much. I was wearing another new hat today and green shoes. So I think I'm really living it. Really. <laughs> you are living the dream. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I hate to think what it would do with you anyway. So that's that's me. That's what I've done. So uh, this show is going to be largely a feedback show, isn't it, really? And um, we've got a few, few emails yes. uh, to deal with. And first of all, apologies to anyone we don't read out. I mean... Some sometimes we get very little feedback. Sometimes we get quite a lot. Sometimes the feedback emails are very long, so we have to edit them. Anyway, if we haven't read yours, it's probably not because of an executive decision about well, the quality of it isn't good enough. In fact, it certainly won't have been that. It will simply be we don't have time. Anyway, yes, with yes. that preamble, let's get to Steve. He says. Mm. Hi, Joe and Nick. I've read a couple of articles recently calling for prayer for revival to awaken mm. the church, etc., etc. So if that happened, what would that look like? And would the church actually be able to cope? Would there be queues to get into church, perhaps a ticket system with EasyJet fast track lanes for those who can afford it? Or would it be all community based small groups meeting in homes? Or would we notice it at all? And indeed, is the concept of revival actually biblical? You both always provide interesting insights. So looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Thanks and keep up the good work. And that's from Steve. So revivalist Nick Page, what you got to say to that? Um, well, it's a really interesting question. I remember my wife um, once asked years ago, she said, what's the point of revival? Because we were looking at all these sort of old chapels in Wales that mm. were now empty and, you know, derelict or something. And and she, it was a great point. You know, what what was the what did it do? Because it seems to have gone now you know um, <laughs> it's lots of buildings now <laughs> yeah. i actually think it's just a distraction really for the church you know the church has been praying for revival and you know they try and find reasons for revival or reasons it did happen reasons it didn't happen nobody knows that really 
I, d I don't think it's if if it's a real phenomenon, which it did happen at certain times. It's hmm. not really in in our control anyway, is it? So who knows, really? Well, I certainly remember from my good old college days that there were good, strong cultural reasons for revival always going coincidentally hand in hand with revival. Um, so we were always encouraged to research what they were as well. Hmm. Right, like like what 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 kinds of things were they? Well, for for example, you know, you know, poverty plays a factor yeah. in it, and and um, you know, the general state of a, a, a where a society is at in terms of health yeah. and education, and all those factors do do definitely play in, and you can see it played out in certain areas in this country, and then you can see it played out in developing countries as well, and depending where they're at, yeah, there are there are strong. Cultural issues. I can't. I'm struggling here. I'm feeling trying to remember desperately all the cultural issues, <laughs> but I can't remember. So I think that's obvious. No, I think you're right. I mean, the, the certain sort of it, it, it grips certainly among certain um, sort of social groups. I think. What would it be good? It would. Wouldn't it be great if more people were Christ-like and followed Jesus? That would be. Well, the, the... that's going to be a fabulous thing for the for the yeah. for them and for the world and for their neighbours and everything. Yes, agreed. So I, you know, I think beyond that, it's very hard to say. But interesting question, thank you. Yeah, and, and what about his question about is it biblical? By the way, is revival biblical? Uh, probably is in terms of there's plenty of evidence in the Old Testament for times of sort of national revival of a revival of worship, uh, but that's, but you know, and I I think you could argue and we're we're coming going to come on to him. So people like John the Baptist had a yeah. you know a big following, and so there's a kind of revival going on there. Okay. Um, you know, so I, yeah, I think it, I think you could find examples, but ultimately, you, let's look at the you know the positives, which would be if it was more people becoming Christ-like, becoming you know, um, and turning in in a Godward direction. That has to be a good thing, I'd have thought. Of course. Yep. Okay. Well, then let's move on to Sam. Now, Sam, we have edited your email because the song that you sent in was so <laughs> funny, and yet. So rude, even <laughs> we didn't feel and this is a genuine worship song, yes, listeners. Yes. <laughs> so maybe we'll put a link to the song on the Facebook page and you can make your own mind up about that. But he did go on. He says, Okay now, after all that waffle, on to my real question. Uh, and he and he is John the Baptist. He says, I've been stuck here for a while. When he asks from prison, are you the one that was to come or are we to expect someone else? I always wonder if there wasn't the obvious question hanging there. You are the Messiah, aren't you? So when are you going to release this particular captive? Uh, we've got work to do. Yet Jesus replies with, you know, some other bits from Isaiah, which there's all Isaiah 61 references here, and avoids the captive bit. Seems a little cruel, although it might have been crueler to have included the captives are freed, I guess. Obviously, as we know, John is subsequently beheaded while still in prison. Humph. Great ending to the story. <laughs> I still love it that even John the Baptist had his doubts. Frees me to have mine. But please can I avoid the beheading bit, if possible? I know this is probably a weird thing to get stuck on and no pressure to reply answer. Just glad of the opportunity to ask the rhetorical question. Anyway, carry on the great work. I'm marginally saner because of it. And that's from Sam. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Sam, and thanks for the bits about the worship songs as well. Yeah. Um, well, so I think John the Baptist is a fascinating figure, um, and I think that he gets short shrift in a way in a lot of theology because he's always seen as just basically Jesus's warm-up act. Yes. You know, that's all. Well, he's he here was, for. wasn't he? Well, 
he was a very significant figure in his own right. If you actually look at what he was doing, it was absolutely revolutionary. Because the key thing about John the Baptist, I think, is is that that he wasn't a priest and he should have been a priest. His father was a priest. Yeah. But he chose not to be a priest. And what he did was exercise priestly kind of functions outside of the structures. Yeah. So he, he taught and he and he gathered people to him and he and he he baptized uh, people and he baptized all the wrong sorts of people, you know, soldiers mm. and uh, prostitutes and tax collectors and Samaritans. Quite clearly, he was baptizing in Samaria. Right. And so he was baptizing. So. So, you know, I think he's a very revolutionary figure and must have had a massive impact on Jesus, who probably mm. spent quite a long time with him. Uh, but in terms of this sort of particular story, there's a there's a there's a thing in in sort of biblical criticism called the criterion of embarrassment. Have you heard about this? Do you know about this? I, I don't recognise it. So it's basically, you know, when you get these scholars sitting in rooms deciding which bits of the Gospels are true and which aren't, mm. uh, you know, um, one of the criteria they use is, um, is it sort of embarrassing to the early church? Oh, right. Um, so one of those things, for example, would be Jesus's baptism. Which, when you've got a high Christology, is a tricky thing to you know to work out. Why does Jesus need baptism? And why does he need to die on a cross? I mean, where does what? it end? <laughs> I mean, that's embarrassing. No but, no, but if baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, and you're saying yes, ah, uh, yeah. without sin, it's yes, a, of course, yeah. So that's the reason for thinking that his baptism is a truly authentic passage. Now, I, right. I would argue that quite a lot of the gospels are authentic much more than they would say but you know okay. that the, uh, do you see what i mean it's a kind of yes no i don't i get it That's so good. so this this story from john the baptist saying are you the messiah wondering whether he's got it wrong basically mm. about jesus sort of fulfills that that mm. uh criteria you know in that it's it was obviously a genuine event that they felt they had to record um, yes, well, I love that about the Bible, that it doesn't airbrush out the sort of awkward bits. And uh... No, and that's exactly the point, mm. isn't it, about mm. the Gospels? So actually, yeah. they're not they're not sort of PR jobs in that sense. No. And Jesus yeah. says some difficult things and does some difficult things, and people doubt. And, you know, as, as um, the email says, you know, right at the end of uh, Matthew, it says, they believed, but they doubted, it says. Mm. Uh, not some doubted. They all, you know, they all had their questions. Um, so they don't iron out those those difficulties, yeah. and I think yeah. that's the thing about this story. It, it's it's a true story. Yeah. John was in prison because he challenged the authorities because he spoke out against Herod Antipas. Uh, he was beheaded because of that, and he had conventional expectations of the Messiah. He thought the Messiah was going to be the normal kind, the kind that they were expecting. And that's why he questioned Jesus. And and, and we're back to the just the very political nature of the Messiah and of Jesus and uh, arguably of the Bible, that actually it, it will get you beheaded following Jesus, won't it? it potentially, yeah. Yeah. if yeah. it ends up with you confronting unjust powers. Yeah. Because unjust I've... powers don't like it when you confront them. No, and that's that's the great that's that's absolutely right. That's great because it, you know Sam asks, uh, please, can I avoid the beheading bit if possible? Well, you know, I don't know if you can, mate. I'll be honest. <laughs> uh, I, I I think I, I think John couldn't avoid it. The Gospels make it clear that others couldn't avoid it. You know, mm. following Jesus had gets people killed around the world. 
and mm. that's that's the fact. It of still it. Now, does. Yeah, yeah it, st- it still does. And you know, it, I think that's it. You know, it's not a fairy story. It doesn't mm. all end happily for everybody. Well, perhaps it does ultimately, but you know, mm. the time yeah, doesn't yeah. end happily. Yeah. Um, and that I think for me is what makes the gospel so powerful and so real. Mm. Great. Well, thank you, and thanks, Sam. And the mm. song really was genius. Okay, yeah. uh, so now we're going to go to the first of two Andrews who have written oh. in. Okay, so Andrew 1, I'm going to call him. He oh. says, uh, read the discussions on how we know, inverted commas, God loves us, which is a feature of both of our shortened creeds. Andrew says, re-listening to the episode, I noticed that you did mention scripture and Jesus did get a brief mention too, but I think he <laughs> deserves more. So it's a loving rebuke from Andrew. It is. He says, I really believe that the life of Jesus shows us what God is like and his love for each one of us. When I was in a very long barren period in my life, I would take long walks, plug in my headphones and listen to the Gospels using the message. It never failed to excite me. Sometimes atheistic friends suggest to me that the Gospels could all be made up. I think C.S. Lewis has written about this view as an expert linguist. He argues that you could not make up such stories. I can't remember where exactly I read this, but I'm hoping that Nick will know. And perhaps you could talk a bit more about the issues because it is such a tenet of both your highly reduced creeds. And I think the knowledge that God does love us is fundamental for good spiritual health. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I like that Jesus Mm. did get a brief mention. That's a, yeah, that's a, that, that should be on on uh, you know one of our little credits on the website. A, yeah, Jesus a, gets a brief mention. It's a review, basically. It's like TripAdvisor trip trip review of the, of the podcast. <laughs> it's very comfortable. Jesus get, did get a brief mention. Um, yes, I, 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 Well, I don't. Let me let me take that bit about the making it up. I think you could make the gospels up i don't think there's anything that would stop you the question is would you in that format i think that's Mm. the issue that that a Mm. lot of uh, scholars take is would you invent a messiah who dies on the cross Mm. would you and one whose resurrection was witnessed by women yeah and one who broke all the jewish purity laws and yes exactly yeah you know bit of a disappointment <laughs> yes yeah. and yeah. one who his family thought were mad you know it's all this again we're back to the mm. embarrassment thing we're back yes, to the, yeah, the authenticity sure. would you do that i don't think you would um and i agree entirely about the the power um of of the gospels um you know i think that's 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 really important certainly how that worked in my life yeah. you know was that i i read the gospels almost for the first mm. time although i've been brought up you know, knowing all the stories and in church, mm. but it was reading the Gospels that actually made me decide to follow Jesus. Mm. Excellent. I think I really do believe that the that reading the Gospels is a life cha- can be a life changing experience. You know, I think that mm. if we if we can take the blinkers off and take away what we've been told to believe about them, or yeah. what we you know the 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 ways in which we represent them, you know, like you know the, mm. the pictures of Jesus that we have as sort of yeah, long haired sure. and blue eyed and you know floating yeah. around Galilee discussing hair conditioner, you know, if we can sort of you know, if we can get rid of that, then you see this this figure that I think really draws you, and that's mm. certainly how it worked in my life, and that's. You know, oh. that's a kind of life changing thing. So, yeah, uh, yeah I would, yeah, uh, yeah I, hopefully Jesus does get more yeah. than a brief mention. What yeah. We do. And what about that thing at the end of this email about um, 
the fact that God does love us is fundamental for good spiritual health. Well, and that's, isn't that that's really yeah. important, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, and, and not just spiritual. I mean, I don't think I think just good health. I right, think me- mental health, all health, really. Yeah. Yeah, because we all need to know that we're loved. Yeah. You know, and I think that's really important. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. So, shall we move on to Andrew two? Second Andrew. The Second book of- Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so that was a mild rebuke. Here comes well something more. Uh, uh, okay. This is dear Joe and N. Uh, oh, says, hello. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to respond to Nick's thoughts on imagination. So that was back in episode 198. If you can think back that far, oh. um, he says. Uh, This is a line of thinking I've encountered before, most notably whilst listening to some teaching by Shane Willard, perhaps 10 years or so ago, in which he encouraged us, if we were not feeling it or were having trouble connecting God, to imagine it. For example, what would it feel like if I could experience the love of God right now? We were then to proceed with summoning said feelings as part of the imagining process and then to accept these as the real deal and carry on doing it into the future. Well, Nick talked about imagining not being the same as inventing and gave the example, <clears throat> excuse me, of projecting forward some future action. While we imagine the action, the action is demonstrably real and can be repeatedly and reliably performed at will. I put it to you that conflating this with imagining other things that cannot be demonstrated, manifest or, or experienced outside of our own heads is a completely different thing altogether. To argue that because one imagined thing is real, the other is therefore also real, is sheer nonsense. I can imagine putting a hat on my head. You can't see my internal visualisation of this. But if I then go ahead and put the hat on my head in front of you, I have unarguably demonstrated that what I claim to imagine is a reflection of an observable, demonstrable, real-world action. You staying with it so far? Good. Uh, yeah, well, I think so. Yeah, good. On the other hand... I can imagine flying unaided through the sky, but clearly this is never really going to happen. These two things are not equivalent. I have mentally projected the action of putting my hat on my head, but have invented the idea of me flying. Maybe I have a large group of friends with whom I get together and we all imagine flying together. No matter how large the group or how often we do it, it will never become any more real. Who knows, we might even sing songs about flying and complain about some of the lyrics. (laughs) He says, I worry that this sort of thing falls into the realm of fake it till you make it, which really just means that eventually the fake becomes so similar you mistake it for the real. If God is really close to me, why do I have to imagine it? If he loves me that much, why doesn't he just make it so, to quote Jean-Luc Picard? Why must I imagine that I hear his voice when it sounds indistinguishable from my own internal voice? Imagining what we appear to lack from God seems to me to be a very poor substitute for the real thing and should beg the question, why are these things not part of my experience? Perhaps we don't ask this question because the obvious answer is it's just too uncomfortable. Or perhaps we've been faking it so long we don't notice anymore. I'm not letting God off the hook on this one. As I alluded to in an earlier email, an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, benevolent God who claims to be super interested in relationship, could, and perhaps should, have come up with a far, far better model of relationship than this. How satisfying would you find an invisible, intangible, inaudible, ineffable wife whose interactions and affections (laughs) you were required to imagine instead of experience? How would you even know if she was home? I bet she'd never do the cooking. 
guess what? You're washing up again tonight and don't forget the bins. No, I'm afraid imagining having the missing bits is as dodgy as all other get-outs as far as I'm concerned and should be raising some serious red flags. Love, Andrew. <laughs> Good email, quite... Andrew. <laughs> I've been red flagged. <laughs> yeah. does, does that, does that yeah. mean I have to go into the pits and have all of my wheels changed or something? What do I... I don't know. I think you may have to go and sit on the stair for five minutes in oh, silence. Okay. <laughs> There's quite a lot in there, isn't there? There was a lot. I Okay, let me... <laughs> it's quite a lot to unpack here, isn't it? Yeah. So, and fundamentally, it's all going to come down to whether or not you believe in God, isn't it? I mean, that's what I think we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, I also, I'm not a philosopher, so you know I, I don't know yeah. all the terminology here. But it seems to me there are some category errors here. So one is if you, if I imagine, fly. So he was using the example of if I imagine us being able to fly, we'll never be able to fly. That's because we can demonstrably prove that man cannot fly. We mm. we know that. You know, if you yeah. if you drop them off a cliff, they don't do very well. They just fall to mm. the ground. So yeah. we know that. But that's not the same with God. You mm. cannot demonstrably prove there is no God. No. Just as you can't, there is. So it's a different thing. So it's a matter of faith. So so my use of the imagination is if is predicated on the idea that that well, what we've just been talking about, mm. that mm. God is real and mm. that more than that, that Jesus does God perfectly. Yes, that's a very important thing to say. And that more than that, if that's true, then in Matthew eighteen twenty, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there among them. Yeah. In other words, he promises us his presence. So I am imagining that I'm using my imagination to enhance that that belief, that, that fundamental belief, mm. that faith. Yeah. Mm. I can't prove whether it's right or not. Mm. I, you know, I... I, I, I there are three things. So, you know, if we go back to the, the ways that, you know, why do you, how do we believe? Um, I believe it in, for a number of reasons. I believe one, because it makes much more sense to me. I believe mm. the idea that there's a God makes sense, but I think actually mm. the type of God also makes sense of my life. It seems to me that's following Christ is the smartest way to live. And I believe because of scripture and I believe because of what the church teaches about various mm. things, not all the things as we discuss at length on this podcast, but some. Mm. And I believe because of personal experience, mystical experiences. Now, you can call those all kinds of things, but what you can't do is deny their reality to me. Yes, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. You can never know that. So uh, I think what I'm trying to say there in the use of the imagination is, it, yeah, I mean, using it to uh, give shape to the belief that I already have that God is present. Mm. No, I think that's really helpful. And, I, I, you know, certainly for me, looking back, I have imagined God one way, only sort of quickly to realise, I oh, know that that isn't quite right. That, that, that That's not right. And so I've imagined God a different way. And I have my own ways of imagining the ever present God with me, which doesn't involve seeing God as a person so much. Still personable, yeah. but not actually a person, if you can live with that contradiction uh, which I can uh, interestingly so 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 I think I think that's that is the point about the missing steps and I suppose even don't sort of scientists do this when they're you know 
testing a hypothesis don't they imagine well this could be the basis yes. this works this hangs together this seems intelligent and then they get some information that's not right so they have to reimagine yes until they they really stick away at the truth and i sort of see my imagining of god in that way i sort of have my ways but i can look back and go oh but it's changed and it's changed and it's changed because you can't be proved and no one's an expert on God mm. and so mm. it is like exactly what you say down to this deeper intuitive sense this kind of sixth sense or whatever you want to call it that intuits the presence of God in our lives um, and has as you rightly say experiences of that mm. now you know what he what he says about you know the the mm. uh, you know the the invisible God you know mm. uh, I, I, to be honest, I do have an ineffable wife, so you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah if, so that breaks down. <laughs> yeah, nothing if not ineffable. Um, but I think uh, you know the that's not new either. So Israel talks about God in 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 Isaiah. So says, you know you are the invisible God. You're not like mm. other gods. You're invisible. You know. So they're they're grappling with that. The Bible grapples mm. with this this the nature of God and why God doesn't in fact turn up anymore you know, in the, in the way that he did or all that kind of stuff. That's a, that's a, that's a constant yeah. thing. So that's nothing new. You know, I, I just think, Andrew, you know, I really appreciate all the thought that's gone in here and I understand entirely where you're coming from. I don't think it's quite the same thing because I think it all boils down to, you know, what what you actually believe about the presence of God, you know, mm. and, and, and the imagination working on that, really. And, and, of course, it can't prove anything one way or the other. I think it's only... Proof like I think there are ways of looking at the effects of that belief in in your own life, but um, you know, I, so I don't think it's an. Im, I, I'm not imagining uh, the a God into existence. I believe God exists, and I'm yeah. imagining His interaction with me. Yeah, and I think that's helpful. And just to take the contrary view, you could say, well, I therefore believe God doesn't exist. Mm. Um, because it's too imaginary, it's too unprovable, it's too untested. But, you know, this table in front of me, I can see that, so I'm going to trust that. And those tree over there, that's real because I can see it and I can trust. But, of course, if you take that approach, it opens up another can of worms in terms of, you know, meaning and existence and mm. why mm. and how do we get here and why are we here and all those sort of things, which you may find some satisfactory answers are, but it's pretty obvious especially when it comes to love, that you're not going to find many satisfactory answers because people have been grappling with that one for years yeah, and years yeah. as well. And it's, it's... Or, or things like beauty. You know, there's no yeah. empirical way of measuring beauty, of proving mm. it mm. in any way. It's, it's, it's a feeling. It's a sense. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's that kind of thing. But, you know, so are there dangers of using the imagination in prayer? I know that some strands of church don't like the use of the imagination, the Orthodox Church. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I didn't quite understand what you were saying, but, you know, the Orthodox Church distrusts the use of the imagination in prayer because, mm. in fact, it's it says your the way you imagine Jesus or God will get in the way of the real experience. Mm. You know, they actually see it as an obstacle, yeah. Um, yeah. which I think is interesting. Whereas, on the other hand, Ignatian prayer... It's entirely yeah, yeah, of course. around it. Yeah. Yeah, but it it's imagination based on scripture. That's the point. So, yes. you know, we have those building blocks of our faith. And I think no matter what element of mid-faith crisis you're in, you've always got these, these three building blocks of faith, the scripture, church tradition, and your own felt experience of God. Mm. Um, 
and those would be different for all of us. But those are those are what we we base it on, really. Yeah, those are the three wheels of the tricycle we ride in faith. <laughs> Is that right? The yes, tricycle of faith. <laughs> yeah. How lovely! And of course, tricycles are inherently unstable going around corners. So you know, <laughs> as Robin Reliant shows. <laughs> yeah, you're much more likely to fall off the tricycle of faith than you are. <laughs> The bicycle of belief. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Ironically. <laughs> anyway, well, look, we should uh, we should close up now, really, because I've got stuff to do. It's Jubilee weekend. It's Jubilee weekend. We've got to pack. We've got to pack. I've got to go. Are you? What are you, are you doing? Anything for Jubilee weekend? Uh, well, my mother uh, has uh, a, a special Jubilee celebration and meal at her home, so we're going to be going and joining them then. Oh, lovely. Uh, there, so that'd be fun. Uh, good to be with her. She is, of course, the same age as the Queen because she's 96. So How fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That'd be nice, yeah. I'm going to go and watch the beacon being lit. Are you? On the top of the church, yeah. You're lighting, setting fire to the church? Well, on top, there's a beacon on top that we set fire to. Is it? Yeah. Is that a normal thing for a church to have? Um, <laughs> it happens at Jubilee times. Okay, good. Uh, they oh, light the how beacon. lovely. I don't, you know, I don't know what the insurance is, but, you know, who knows? Um, <laughs> Handy if you need a new roof. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> there is, a, there is a, a school of thought about that. I hope they light it in some impressive way, like firing a flaming arrow through it. Or well, that like would that. be That'd beautiful. Be yeah. But it'll probably be, you know, a bloke up the top of the tower with a with one of those lighters, with a Zippo. Yeah. I remember the Millennium celebrations in uh, in Worthing and uh, there's one of those beacons left over that were all around the country and so mm. everyone gathered around that and then there was this tiny, like, little Bunsen burner inside <laughs> it. It was the single most <laughs> unimpressive celebration I've ever seen in my life. Anyway, <laughs> to to all royalists and to all republicans and everybody, yes. have, a great, have a great weekend and we will be back in a couple of weeks. We will. 